The New Testament reading is from Mark chapter 12, verse 13 to 17. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You are swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew the hypocrisy. Why aren't you trying? Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Carol and Barry, for reading for us. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see you here. If we haven't met, as you just heard, my name's Jason. Uh, I'm glad most people know it. Uh, if we haven't met yet, uh, I'd love to talk to you afterwards, after church, as we talk out on the nice green out there. If we have met, I'd still like to talk to you, don't worry. Uh, that would be wonderful. Uh, one of the great things about doing the Ten Commandments series is learning the commandments for ourselves. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I challenged you to learn them and gave many of you a way uh, my heart was gladdened when my kids come home from kids' church last week and said, we're trying to teach the kids the Ten Commandments and heaps of them already knew them because they were in church the previous week and they knew the pictures that I'd put up along with the commandments that follow through. Uh, so hopefully some of you have been teaching your kids through those and that's great. Uh, if you are wondering what I'm talking about, uh, let me know and I'll forward through what I showed you in the first week. Uh, let's pray and then we'll get into the Second Commandment. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we come to your word, we know that it speaks to us today. We thank you that it is indeed a present word and demands a response from your people. May we be hearers today and may we be doers who honour and praise and worship you as we should. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my favourite stories from the Old Testament is the Battle of Mount Carmel. You're probably wondering, what are you talking about, Jason? What's the Battle of Mount Carmel? Well, it, well it's, it's King Ahab and the prophets of Baal versus Elijah. It's one versus many. And it's a battle that goes on on top of a hill. Uh, they set up uh, a fire. Well, actually, it's not lit yet, but they set up wood to burn a cow that is on top of this pile. And it's a battle to see whose God will actually burn up the offering to the God. And so, well, the Baal prophets, they labor away for, for six hours from dawn right through. They're just trying really hard. They're sweating, they're yelling, they're dancing, they're running around. They're doing everything, trying to get Baal to answer their requests. After six hours, Elijah starts to sledge. Elijah says, oh, maybe you should shout louder. Oh, maybe your God's not listening. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's thinking it over. Why don't you try harder? And, and so they do. But it gets them nowhere. 
And so then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah, with no pomp and no ceremony, except to up the stakes, he gets some water, he pours it all over, makes sure everything's really, really wet, this is not going to catch on fire, and then he prays. And he prays this prayer, he says, Yahweh, let it be known that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that at your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that this people will know that you, Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And fire rained down from heaven and burnt it all up and it's all consumed. And everyone knows Yahweh is God. It's a wonderful story. If I'd have grown up in a kid's church, which I didn't, if I, if I had of, I would have loved that story. I have to love it as an adult. But I'm sure many have heard it as kids. And I imagine at the end of that story, commandment two is obvious. It's obvious. I should worship just the one God. I shouldn't worship other gods because they're nothing compared with the one God. Don't follow other gods. Don't bow to statues. Don't worship things God created. Worship God alone. Now, I wonder if commandment two feels just as obvious to you. Does it feel obvious? Obviously, I'm not going to bow to a lump of wood. I've never done it, never will. You'll never catch me. I wonder if you feel like that. Commandment two, what? What's it for? What's it about? I don't worship trees. I won't bow down to the moon. Forget it. Well, I think today we'll see it's much harder to live this command than we think, at least at the start. But as we dig into it, we'll see there's a lot of the heart in this commandment. And so we're going to start with the actual commandment. Uh, You've got my outline today in proof of my admin incompetence. I printed it yesterday, but couldn't fold it, so you may have to fold it for yourself. Uh, The machine, I mean, couldn't fold. I could have folded it. I just want (laughs) to fold that many of them. Uh, You know what I mean. Anyway, I've broken all sermon rules. There's not three points. There's seven points today. But we're already up to number two, so they're pretty quick points as we march through. Let's have a look at the commandment. Heading number two. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall not make for yourself an image. Uh, Now, the image word, it's a Hebrew word. It it means representation. It means an idol. It's sometimes translated a carved idol. You shall not make for yourself an image, verse 4, in the form of anything, anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Uh, In other words, don't prostrate yourself don't serve, don't honour something that you've made or a representation of something God made. Obvious, so obvious if you know your Ten Commandments. And yet, there are countless examples where the Israelites forgot the command. Habakkuk 2. Uh, A lot of these verses are on your outline or you can flip if you're a a quick Bible flipper. Habakkuk 2, God says, Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Don't try and worship a dead thing, a lump of wood. In 2 Kings 21 verse 3, about King Manasseh, God says, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations. He rebuilt the places, the high places, and erected altars to Baal. Worshipping other gods, what is going on here? It should have been obvious, or as we saw last week, the golden calf incident. 
Even at the end of the Ten Commandments, God repeats himself. Exodus 20, verse 23, God repeats and clarifies. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Should be clear, right? Another verse saying the very same thing. Mick Bullen was right last week when he said it, and I've, I've got to do an impression. Guys, what are you doing? Is that okay? Uh, He was right though, wasn't he? What are they doing? It is obvious. You've got to get the arms out when you do do the mic. We don't have time to recount every single time. But the obvious is not obvious. Guys, what are you doing? It's obvious that the second commandment is easy to understand and hard to live. That's what we see in the Old Testament. And it's the living it that challenges God's people and where we'll focus a lot of our energy today. Heading number three. To understand why, though, we have this problem, we have to see what God intended at creation. What does it truly mean to image God? Flip to Genesis 1.27. It says there that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Uh, here again, the word image, it's not the exact same Hebrew word, but it is, it is a synonym to the one in the second commandment. And, and the point is, God intends humanity to image him, to be a representation of him, to be like him, but not him. We were given a, ru- a realm to rule over. Under him, we had a rule over creation. Uh, we were to be relational under him with each other but with him to worship and honor him and at the creation it was good it was good the problem was since the fall we said no we didn't want to be image bearers we wanted to make our own way we wanted to create our own image that is what sin is that is what caused the very fall we thought we'd be image makers not image bearers. We thought we'd determine our destiny rather than live God's destiny. We thought we'd rather make gods of our own than worship the creator who we image. So when we break the second commandment, what we are doing is forgetting our created place. God's told us we forget. We forget the obvious Which is why commandment two has never been just about lumps of wood, carvings and stones. It's always been about this, our hearts. The reformer John Calvin had a great insight when he said, the human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. He he speaks the truth. Out of the human heart and mind comes all sorts of idolatry, of pride, of self-interest. And it makes sense because who wouldn't want a God of their own making? Who wouldn't want to spiritually 3D print their own God? You know, this is the kind of God I want. I'll design him up. I'll make him this kind of thing. He approves this kind of thing. He's this kind of print. Boom, there you are, my God, approving everything. Of course we would love this kind of thing. A God in our own image. See the irony there. At creation, we were made to image God, but the second commandment reminds us we've fallen short of that. 
the Israelites over and over again. And what about us? That's the question to ask. Which brings us to Jesus in heading four. Heading four, Jesus perfectly images God. Now we saw this last term, so if you remember from last term, Colossians 1.15, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus perfectly images God, so much so that John 1.18 says, only Jesus has made God known. So you want to see God, you want to understand God, you look to Jesus. Uh, He alone is actually keeping the second commandment. He alone keeps the created order. Uh, When Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, all he wanted Jesus to do was to bow down and worship him. Worship Satan, you can have it all, you can have this whole planet, if you'll only worship Satan. And Jesus responded, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus never wanted to replace the true God with a so-called God, even Satan, the so-called God. Jesus fulfills the second commandment. And even more, he exposes the full intentions of it. A great example of that from the New Testament is our Mark reading today. You might have thought, why do we read Mark 12? What a strange reading to add into the second commandment. Some Pharisees and some experts in the law were trying to lay a theological trap. We've got him, they thought. We're going to trap him today. Should we pay taxes to the state? Simple question. But Jesus knew the hypocrisy of their question. They wanted to trap him to see if he was prepared to to serve a foreign king or not. Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. Whose image is on this? I imagine holding it up. Who knows how big it is? Holding it up, whose inscription is on his? And they have to say, Caesar's. So, Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And very, very pointedly, and give to God what is God's. If you are made in the image of God, if you bear the image of God, who do you belong to? To God. It's a great little story that reminds us that we are to image God and we are for his glory not for our own, and not for worshipping whatever we want to worship as a by-the-by. It's a great point. It's one that we need to take to heart so that we don't follow false gods or idols. Uh, How do we do that knowing the Israelites knew all this and the Israelites failed? Well, if you remember our series in Colossians again, Colossians 3.10 says, you need a new heart. You need a new way forward. It's, it seems obvious, but it's hard to live. And so Colossians 3.10, we had to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. You see, it's actually God who is renewing our image. He's taking us back to where we began so we can image God properly. It can only happen in Jesus That's why we're all about Jesus. In Jesus, there is renewal to be the people God made us to be, to fulfill the created purposes he has for us. And so as he shapes us by knowledge of his will, through his word, through his spirit working in us, we are renewed to image God, just like Jesus did. And without faith in Jesus, well, we're trapped even if we see the obviousness of the command, we're trapped by our sin 
and we struggle to live the truth, to image God as we should. Which means, as Christians, if you're a Christian in this room today, we want to think carefully now, what does it look like to be renewed into the image of God? What will it look like to obey the second commandment for us? Uh, Before I get there, as a side note, what comes next is really for people who trust Jesus. And I want to make that point doubly clear. I'd hate for you to hear me say, you've got two options, you can trust Jesus. Or the other option is, just make sure you do all these things. And it's the same. that's not what I'm saying. The only way the things we talk about can happen is with the power of God for his people as he renews them. Uh, but similarly, for everybody who's a Christian... Don't hear the challenges today as something you have to do to, to stay Christian. Oh no, if I, if I fail once, I'm out. That's also not what I'm saying. We live under grace. We have the wonderful truth of the gospel and we can be forgiven these sins. Yet we are responsible at the very same time to be renewed and for how we live in response to this grace that we have, which does mean repentance, which does mean turning back from things we know are wrong. So with those things in mind, I want to say to you, heading five and heading six, don't bow down to Baal and then don't worship golden calves. Don't bow down to Baal. Now you're going, never done it, never will. Don't even know what a Baal statue looks like. Hear me out. Uh, For the Israelites, Baal was a frequent stumbling block uh, over and over again in the Old Testament. First met in Numbers, continually met right through the Old Testament. Baal was a fertility god primarily. Uh, If you go to any of the major museums around the place, uh, there are Baal statues everywhere. They're often standing with their hands in an awkward position like this. You wonder why? It was because originally they had some sort of metal or or something in that stick, something that represented lightning. Because they're a fertility god, they're in charge of the weather and all that, and so he was supposed to look like he was in charge of everything. Archaeologists dig up these things constantly, little Baal statues. You can Google and have a look at some of them. But in Numbers 25, the Israelites encounter the Moabites. They met the Moabite women and they looked good, shall we say, to the men. And they found them to be quite inviting, shall we say. And after the immorality and the invitation, they were keen to keep worshipping those Baals, to share in the religion of those women. And so a kind of pattern formed where sinful desire becomes the gateway drug to false worship. And that's what I mean by us worshipping the Baals. It's when our passions and our desires lead to misdirected worship. Often we completely say, I follow Jesus, and yet our passions and desires speak to other gods in our life at the very same time. Uh, Let me give you an example of Baal-style worship. If you remember the Colossians series, we were told, put to death greed, which is idolatry. And that's because greed is misdirected service of money. It's making money so important, wanting money so much, that that it becomes what your life is truly about. I'm about Jesus. Are you about Jesus or are you about the, the money? It leads to a temptation to serve God and money at the same time. Jesus answered somebody who tried to do that in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can be a slave of two masters, since either he'll hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. And so the money, Baal, it is alive and well in our society. He's he's still alive. 
People are still chasing after him. People are trying to seek his blessing on their life, even if they don't know it. Uh, News.com.au publishes its annual cost of living survey every year. You may have seen it. Uh, the results roughly are the same each year, but, but this year, shockingly, half the Aussies that they surveyed that are on $150,000 or more say that's not enough to live a comfortable life in Sydney. Okay, <laughs> I'm in trouble. I have a very comfortable life in Sydney. Thank you to our wardens. $150,000. But they do say if you have another $20,000, I would be comfortable. So apparently $170,000 is the magic number now to be comfortable, according to the news.com.au uh, annual cost of living survey. Surely that tells you that the God of money, Baal, is a hard God to serve, a demanding God to serve, the kind of God, no matter how much you have, you want more, there must be just a little bit more to reach true happiness. The way to avoid Baals of money is generosity. It's to use your money, not for you, but for God, to find joy in giving and serving that way rather than serving ourselves. And it's a hard lesson to learn as Westerners, as capitalists, it's a hard lesson to learn. I want to echo our treasurer Aria's comments from the AGM right here, I don't know, six weeks ago or something, whenever it was, uh, based upon his analysis, and you can chase this up with him, uh, he thinks that as a church we have great capacity for generosity. A great capacity. Where you, as he looks at the kind of averages and asks those questions, so we've got great capacity for generosity. Now that's a wonderful opportunity because if that is true, you can check that with our, I'm sure it's right, he's good at these things. Uh, if that is true, then that's a wonderful opportunity to put off the false god because generosity counters the serving of a false god. If God has shown you much grace, then respond to him with much grace and it's a wonderful joy to do that in serving him of course that means what does he want well he wants us to use what we give him for the good of his kingdom supporting his work whether it be his mission societies out whether it be your church at home whether it be other gospel partnerships find that joy of joining in with generosity rather than chasing the false god of money and i know it's a challenge for every single one of us but money isn't the only modern Baal. That's just the beginning of the story, really. Uh, we won't delve into too many of them, but could it be for you the temptation to idolise your children? Uh, putting kids' activities, success, futures in front of ourselves is a massive challenge in front of God. For others, it may be the God of work. If you feel good about yourself only truly when you get your performance review and someone pats you on the back, that's when your identity is clear where is your identity really set? That could it be the God of pride that leads to the temptations of building facades, social media facades, uh, facades of your home, look how wonderful it is, facades of the great church miracle where you fight in the car and shut the car doors in the parking lot and this is the perfect family. Nobody's ever seen such a perfect family arrive at church. We can follow many gods as we follow Jesus, and that is what it is to bow down to Baals, to try and add them in. And in the end, these passions and desires make us sad, tear us away from the one true God. Don't bow down to Baal. But then there's the second, don't worship the golden calf. Again, you're going to say, 
I'd love the gold, I'd be generous with it, I'd give it to church. I'd never bow down to it, but this is what I mean. Listen to Romans 1.22. Of humanity, God says through Paul, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man, birds, four-footed animals and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in their cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity. So their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things instead of the creator who is ever praised. The golden calf worship is actually the more insidious kind of worship. It's not trying to add, I've got Jesus and I'm trying to add a bit of stuff as well. It's the straight out exchange of one God for another. It's the lie of the golden calf. Aaron said it, here Israel is your gods. What a terrible thing to change the God into the true God into a lie. So if you want a golden calf detector, it often starts like this. The Jesus I know would never say, you cannot be happy, that your life shouldn't be perfect. Uh, the Jesus I know would never talk about hell. Uh, the Jesus I know is too loving to care what I do behind closed doors at night. And then the sentence often finishes with, so for me, I like to think of Jesus as fill in the blank. Now, I realise the irony of saying this just after we talked about Jesus is, and I want to affirm, Simon actually helped me to see this this morning, uh, I want to affirm that Jesus is is all about showing from the Bible who Jesus is. What I'm saying here is that there is a temptation to say that Jesus I know is not who the Bible says he is, but he is something else. And you may have heard people do this many times. And in the end, it's a question of where is your authority? Which God do you trust and why? Is it the Bible that determines who is your God and who is your Jesus, or is it your gut? Is it God's word, or is it how society thinks about who Jesus should be? Uh, historically speaking, this has been really, really hard because often literacy has been a barrier. Uh, often literacy means I can't just open the Bible and I'm dependent upon someone else to teach the Bible to me. And that's led to all sorts of problems. Uh, I was in Mexico in 2017 with Heather and the girls. Uh, we were visiting our friends, the Shoals, uh, CMS missionaries in Latin America. And so we spent a couple of weeks, one week of sort of ministry with them. It's really fun, except I don't speak Spanish. Just sat and watched. And another week, we did a little holiday with them because they're our dear friends. And it was incredible as we went town to town to town. And we stopped off and we had a look at the town. Around every town, the centre of every little Mexican town, a massive church. Every church we come across, about 500 years old. Just incredible. 200 years, 500 years old. But if you go back 500 years, we're talking pre-Reformation theology, pre-Counter-Reformation Roman Catholic theology. We're talking about a whole different world, and it's, it's really interesting. So what did these people understand God to be? And you look up at the roof, and there's a picture of Mary with Aztec rays coming out of her. A syncretism, taking the Aztec religion and they've taken some of the Bible and they've smashed it together and this is what they understood God to be. It's incredible. We have the wonderful antidote today of literacy, we should be thankful for that, and Bibles, 
because we have a place to go, to God's word, to test things. The antidote to golden calf idolatry is, what does the Bible say? In fact, a, a sign of a mature church is when we have big questions, when society is questioning us, when we have internal questions to ask, if our answer is, well, what does the Bible say? We're on the right track. It means that God's word is our authority. Commandment two is still important for us today because society is testing us. Society is asking us to change, to be like the world in many moral areas. And we want to say, wait, what does Jesus say in the Bible as we think through these things? Don't bow down to the Baals of today. Well, heading number seven, and we're coming to the end now. Uh, why do we do these things? We've already talked about the image purpose of humanity. But there's also an answer to why should we keep the second commandment in the commandment itself. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 5, it says, You must not bow down to the images. Why? For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Now, the word jealous has negative connotations, but it's not actually always negative. It's not wrong for a husband or wife to be jealous of their flirty partner. That would be a right thing to be jealous for the affections of the one you have committed to for life. And that is what God has done. He is committed to his people. And he is jealous for our affection rightly. It shows he loves us. It shows he is serious about us and serious about betrayal. As Exodus 25 goes on to say, God punishes the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. But he shows faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. And we don't have time to go into the economy of that. Uh, three or four generations versus a thousand, that's an interesting thing. I think primarily it's the magnitudes we're talking about. Much more, much more is God's love for those who trust him. But we can't miss a point. Our sin against God, breaking the second commandment, it actually has an impact on others as we have an impact upon God. Uh, no man is actually an idol. Uh, an idol? That's probably true as well. No man is an island. We know that saying, the abusive man worshipping the bowl of alcohol destroys his marriage and his children's life and the whole network of people around him. The neglectful mother who perhaps pursues her own uh, pursuits in life at the expense of her children misshapes children's idea of relationships. The, the quiet pornography worship of a sexual bowl enslaves other people in sex slavery. Our sin, our, our following the Baals, if you like, leads to other people being hurt. There is an overflow of our sins. It affects generations, if you like. In the Christian home, this is all magnified. If Christian parents worship the gods of this world, it shouldn't be a surprise if the children worship the gods of this world. So we all must ask, what do our actions say about our true worship. How does the way you live show the God you follow? And there's a wonderful truth here, is that we're all going to say, well, if you really look at it, I fail. And yet, under God's grace, whatever our false worship is, it is being renewed. 
and reoriented. And as we repent and turn back, God is empowering that repentance and that change of life. Therefore, worship Jesus. That's the positive thing to do. Worship Jesus and put the pathetic gods to the side. Well, I began with that awesome story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Great story. Wonderful story to tell, but there is an even more awesome story. You'll think it sounds more boring, but it's actually way more awesome. Paul wrote to these Greek converts, the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, and said, The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. See, the Elijah story is about insiders, the Israelites who, who got the command and, and were supposed to live it. And the lesson for them through history was, well, it's a powerful error not to follow the true God. But the Thessalonian story is more incredible because these are outsiders. These are people who didn't get the commandments. These are outsiders to God who, who met Jesus and then found real hope and put off the idols. Their testimony is a wonderful testimony, an incredible one. Uh, their testimony is actually how we can respond to the second commandment. May the way we live so show that we've put off the idols in our life, that the gospel message rings out from us, that people look at us and say, Praise God, Jesus must be at work in you. That's my prayer for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that like the Thessalonians, we will follow Jesus with all of our heart and our soul. We pray that you would show us what idols exist in our lives and help us to put them off. And we pray, Lord, that as we follow our Lord, that it will be a wonderful and joyful experience and that repenting and renewal will bring us great joy as we become more like our Lord and image you better in this life waiting for the next. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.